Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hello and welcome to Dear Hank and John. Or as I prefer to think of it, Dear John and Hank. It's a podcast, a comedy podcast, where me and my brother John talk about death and we uh, answer people's questions and give them dubious advice and bring you all the week's news from both Mars and AFC Wimbledon. How you doing, John? Oh, I'm doing all right. I'm surrounded by darkness. Ah, well, I'm surrounded by light. <laughs> I'm not really. I'm actually doing, I'm, I'm doing fine. I don't know why I said I was surrounded by darkness. In an astonishing development... What I've now referred to as the long, improbable summer of Taylor Swift in Indianapolis continues. Uh, it's it's perhaps it's actually really lovely lovely here in Missoula too. I don't know if she played there this week, but it's uh, it's seventy four degrees outside right now, and it rained briefly. And I was like, okay, it's ended. It's finally ended. The autumn has arrived. Um, but though the leaves are changing, and it could not uh, be more more beautiful to watch uh, the yellow and red and uh, appear. Uh, Throughout the trees of Indianapolis, the weather itself remains just blissfully sunny. Well, I'm glad we get to talk about the weather here on the podcast, John. I uh, had my customary post-convention wave of depression crash on me yesterday. That's just something that happens. Uh, And so, you know, you're ready for it. You know what's going to happen. Because I, I, uh, for those of you who don't know, I, I, my... I run a company that runs conventions. Uh, it's very like you work really hard to make this thing happen, and then it happens, and then it ideally goes well, and then uh, you feel real good until you don't anymore. It's very strange, yeah. And it happens every time, and uh, and so I that happened yesterday. Yeah, <laughs> still a little bit reeling from it. I had. Uh, Did you take the day off? What do you What do you do in that situation? Uh, well, I I tend to not realize it's happening for a while. And so, no, I, I just did my normal thing, which is good. Like, the normal things sort of, like, carry you through. But then what happened is I had this period of uh, not having anything to do. And then uh, and then I immediately went uh, in search of people who might be on the Internet trying to make me angry. Uh, I don't I don't know why that's the thing I do when I'm depressed, but I do. I, I go on the Internet and I look for people who dislike me. Well, and to be clear, you mean sad more than depressed like you don't mean that there's yeah, some like sure, crushing sure. uh pathological problem just that there's a sadness that descends upon you yeah yeah well yeah like a, a mood that i am not in control of and that is unpleasant right yeah no that's no fun and then i i myself have also been known to in those times go onto the internet and try to find people um who hate me so that i can um yeah, feel bad about myself and, and be confirmed in the knowledge that everything I fear about myself is true and that the world knows it. All right. You want a short poem? Yeah, let's do it. God, this is a funny podcast. <laughs> okay, Hank, here's our poem for today. It's called The Skylight by Seamus Heaney. It's actually a, a recommendation by Jeremy. You were the one for skylights. I opposed cutting into the seasoned tongue and groove of pitch pine. I liked it low and closed. It's claustrophobic, nest-up-in-the-roof effect. I like the snuff-dry feeling, the perfect trunk-lid fit of the old ceiling. Under there, it was all hutch and hatch. The blue slates kept the heat like midnight thatch. But when the slates came off, extravagant sky entered and held surprise wide open. For days, I felt like an inhabitant of that house where the man sick of the palsy was lowered through the roof, had his sins forgiven, was healed, took up his bed, and walked away. The Skylight by Seamus Heaney. A funny poem to start our comedy podcast. 
I was just uh, thinking the other day about how I like enclosed spaces and how my house is, uh, my, my bedroom is very large. It has a large, uh, high ceiling. It's not a very large bedroom, but it has a very high ceiling. And uh, I sometimes I'm like, I just want to be in the closet. <laughs> I, I love, uh, I love glass and steel homes. I believe that I, like my favorite uh, house is Philip Johnson's glass house. And I would be very happy living in, in a house with no walls at all, just so long as I had extreme privacy. <laughs> <laughs> nope, that's not how I feel. I I I used to when I was a kid, uh, just uh, make little nests in the closet and and pack myself in there uh, and and spend time there. And my parents thought it was super weird. Our parents, yeah, they were my parents as well. Henry does that now, so maybe he got that from his uncle Hank. Let's answer a question from our readers. Uh, this is an important one, Hank, and it's it's kind of breaking news. It's seasonally appropriate. It's from Abby. She writes, "Dear John and Hank, as Halloween is approaching, I have a question." What are your favorite costumes you've made? Ooh. Uh, hmm. I was Jane from Firefly once. Last year I was Hiccup and Catherine was uh, was uh, the, the, the dragon. What's the dragon's name? I mean, our friendship is in danger right now. I, I mean, I obviously know this. My wife was the dragon for, for Halloween. The dragon is a night fury. I know what kind of dragon it is. Why is that? Why is the thing not in my head? Does he have any tooths? Oh, Does toothless. he have any tooths? Toothless. It's toothless. The yeah. dragon. Toothless. Um, so we were toothless in Hiccup, uh, and and once we were we were Napoleon and Deb from Napoleon Dynamite, which I think was my favorite of all time. The, the, yeah, you've always been better at costuming than than I have. Uh, Sarah and I never really dressed up. We went to one costume party together. I can't remember what I dressed up as, but she dressed up as a cowgirl, and it was unconvincing. <laughs> um, I should say, also, when I was Jane, Catherine was Kaylee. Uh, so we like to do the couple thing. Kaylee is my favorite. She's adorable. Oh, she's totally my favorite. Yeah. Um, so the only costume I can remember properly loving is when I was a little kid, my mom made me a robot costume that I wore like three or four Halloweens in a row because it was that just, robot costume was awesome. It was magnificent. Yeah, it was just I amazing. remember that. I felt like yeah. a robot. I was so jealous of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when I was inside of it, I felt like this is it, man. I did it. I've become an artificial intelligence. It was great. <laughs> Plus, I got candy. What a what a great what an underrated holiday. I I as an adult, I find it very strange. Here's the thing I like about Halloween. I like that we send our children to strangers' houses. Yes. I think that that's that's a good thing that we should do more often. Uh, no, not I too much like, more often. As an as a as an adult, I don't want too many strangers coming to my house. If that's right, right, right. I like that we send children to strangers' houses. I don't really like that they send them to my house. <laughs> but I I like yeah. that I'm willing to accept it because I like the institution of of just like okay, let's have faith in humanity for a day. What I don't really like is that the 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 payoff is just just awful awful food that is very bad for children oh it's i don't know it seems like a strange thing to celebrate i think it's fine um by the way do you know how many children have died in the united states from uh poisoned halloween candy i believe it's zero it is zero you know how many uh times there's been a uh a razor blade inside an apple that's that's also a zero also a zero yes this is a great example of the the sort of disparity between uh, actual data and and our perceptions. It just seems dangerous to send our kids out and allow them to accept candy from strangers. But in fact, uh, it isn't. Um, yeah, we we are bad at understanding danger. 
as humans? Oh, terrible at it. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've risked my life by applying hand sanitizer while driving a car. <laughs> yeah, that is that is definitely a great example of misunderstanding risk. Speaking of all this, Hank, I think that uh, this would be a great time for a question from Caitlin. Uh, Caitlin says, Dear Hank and John, through listening to your podcast, I get the impression that John, as a writer, believes humans are inherently evil, while Hank, as a scientist, believes humans are inherently good. Do you agree with this viewpoint? No, John doesn't believe humans are inherently evil, do you? No, I just believe humans are inherently hungry. Well, I mean, for at least part of the day. No, I don't mean, like, physically hungry. I mean hungry. I mean (laughs) ambitious. I mean... That, that when necessary, you know, homo homini lupus because uh, because you're hungry and ambitious and, and you, you, you know, the heart wants what it wants kind of thing. I, I don't think people are bad. I think that they're, they're hungry. Right. Well, I think, but I think that there is also a lot of, like, in addition to the hunger, there are other motivations that are good. That, and, like, of course, what is good and bad. But uh, I... I, the distinction between the uh, the author and the scientist is interesting here. Uh, that like, uh, if you take an objective point of view, people look like good people, and and if you take a if you take a more like uh, you know you know imagining possibilities, maybe then humans look more dastardly. I don't know. I mean, yeah, I think that's an interesting point of view. I I don't think that I I have to say I don't think humans are good or bad. I think that they're good and bad. I, I Henry is obsessed. I have a five and a half year old son for new listeners to the podcast. My five and a half year old son is obsessed with good and evil. And, you know, most of the stories that really resonate with him, whether it's, you know, Star Wars or Ninjago or Penguins of Madagascar, like most of those stories have good guys and bad guys. Um, and the good guys are, are pretty darn good. And the bad guys are pretty darn bad. And, um, and then there are the, the, the characters that Henry calls complicated. (laughs) And um, I remember one time he said, he said, Daddy, Hulk smash is complicated. (laughs) And I was like, is he? And he said, yeah, Hulk smash is complicated. He's because he's good and bad. Um, And I think uh, I think this is not just a, a, a just Hulk smash. I think, in fact, uh, almost everyone is is good and bad. And and I also think that, like, in, in trying to do good, you can do, uh, you know, horrible, horrible evil. And in trying, you know, and in trying to, to do bad, you can also do good. Like, it's just so hard to, it's so hard to sort it out. I, yeah, I think that that what I mean when I say humans are inherently good is that people are bound by the contracts of culture and... And and that is one of the things that we consider to be the good is that like culture has rules and we tend to obey them. The other thing that I mean when I say that humans are good is that in general, uh, a lot of the motivations of people are to make life better for the people they love. Yeah, I agree with that. I I and I believe in empathy and I believe that humans are capable of extraordinary altruism. I wouldn't go so far as to say that people are good, like you keep saying. <laughs> Uh, in fact, every time you say it, I'm wincing a little bit because it just seems f- far too optimistic. I don't know. I just I've met a lot of people and they seem pretty nice. I agree. Almost all of the people that I have ever met are good. And, and I, I will say this, I guess all the people I've ever met are both good and broken. Um, <laughs> but most of all, but, hungry. 
I can't emphasize <laughs> enough how much I believe in human hunger. Uh, uh, I guess. Okay, let's move on. We can agree to disagree. Uh, people are people are good and hungry and broken. Okay, it's our first proper disagreement. Hank thinks that humans are good. I think that humans are good and bad. <laughs> That's as close as we've ever come to a real disagreement. Okay, Hank, we've got another question. This one is very important, and it comes from Adam, who writes, Dear John and Hank, I am a junior in high school, and I referee kids' soccer games. First off, Adam, I just want to pause to thank you for doing the Lord's work. <laughs> this means I have a lot of experience with angry parents yelling at me. Why do you think adults are compelled to yell at teenagers during sports games? And what should I do about it? Oh, Adam, this is such a good question. It is. And I am so sorry that in refereeing children's soccer games, you, a high school junior, are being treated by parents as if you are an actual figure of authority. <laughs> I think, so I... I I don't know if this is going to work, but my my suggestion to you, I don't really know how, how how children's soccer games work, but I assume that it's just a bunch of people standing along like there's no this is a bunch of people standing around, right? Yeah. With like a line on the ground and some 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 goals. Yeah. Uh so go up to the people before the game and say, "Hi, my name is Adam. I'm a junior over at the school, uh, over at Middledale High School, and I just wanted to say I'm going to, you know, I'm out here to, like, make sure everybody has a good time and try and make sure everybody doesn't get hurt. And uh, and uh, it was nice to meet you. And then and then maybe they will have some empathy and realize that they are yelling at a child. Yeah, I, I actually agree with that strategy. And maybe also say, um, just actually say, I am a, a person. Um, <laughs> in addition to pointing out that <laughs> yeah, you were I mean, a junior in high like, school, because one of the weird things about referees is that I have a theory. I have a theory, actually, that wearing uniforms is a way of dehumanizing um, is, is a way of dehumanizing the other. Oh, yeah. So like and, and that uniforms are kind of like designed so that you don't have to think about people as people. One time I, when I was in college, I went to a girls uh, softball game was dating a member of the softball team and I am a uh, I'm just an inveterate talker at at public sporting events and I don't even like you know like uh Alice is is my daughter is two and and when she plays soccer I will even uh, I won't criticize the refereeing but I will comment upon it um, <laughs> just because it's the thing to do it's part of the sporting event. Uh, yeah, exactly. It feels like it's part of the sporting event. So I remember anyway, I, I was I, I was criticizing the strike zone uh, at this uh, women's softball game at Kenyon College, Division Three school. And um, the umpire just took off his, his mask and he turned around and he looked at me. And the moment he looked at me, I was like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I didn't realize you had eyes. <laughs> I just realized you were a person like all the other people. Ugh. Yeah, so Adam, I think what's happening is that, you know, people aren't thinking of you as a, as a person. They're thinking of you as sort of an obstacle to their child's success. And and when you do that, you know, like you're you, it feels like th someone is opposing your child and you're very defensive of your child. But I really like Hank's suggestion of just going up to them before the game and being like, "I am 16." <laughs> I am doing this out of the goodness of my heart. Yeah. I'm going to make $50 over the next three hours, so maybe don't be a jerk to me. Yeah, I think I think also, like, like uh, even, it, you know, if people... 
continue recognized first of all that it's not it's probably not most of the people and and second uh you know the people who are doing it it might just be that like this is the way they experience sports you yell at the referee that's a thing you do and uh and and at a at a large sporting event like that they have been trained how to behave at sporting events at uh that you certainly do that of course you do that i i am very uh, I, kind of anti this. I feel very strange. We have a we have a hockey team in Missoula that is uh, like sort of it's like the lowest professional level you can be. Uh, and the a lot of the pe- players on the team are are like 16, 15 even years old. Um, so like they've dropped out of high school to start their professional hockey careers. It's very weird. Uh, and when the when when the crowd starts jeering these children. Of, of the other team I'm just like no 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 stop or, or like when they get in a fight and like it feels very strange to like like what like be in a group of people who are cheering for children to fight each other like that just it seems very very wrong very weird and uh and I like I like very much that I get to watch live hockey even if it is a, a very low, low level of hockey but I am I am often disturbed by the audience I'm uh pretty uh concerned <laughs> I have to say by the fact that you live in uh, Panem and you guys are doing the Hunger Games there in Missoula. <laughs> I mean, basically, yes. That's weird. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, with really bad pizza. Oh, God. Adam, you are a person. Uh, this is not about you. It's not even about the quality of the refereeing is the other thing. Like, uh, a really well-refereed game will still get a lot of jeers. Um I don't know. I think it's something that's inherent to the to uh, an inherent problem within the sport is that uh, is that it's the black and white striped uniform. I think I agree. Uniforms are definitely dehumanizing, and that is part of their goal. We have a question from Jillian who asks, "Dear Hank and John, Gotham uses the bat signal, a modified searchlight, to let Batman know that they need help during times of crisis." Knowing what little I do about the functionality of searchlights, admittedly a very small amount, wouldn't the light need to be projected against something reflective or solid in order for it to be visible and not escape unnoticed into the great beyond of space? Ultimately, does this mean that Batman only works on cloudy nights? Well, first off, Julian, every night is cloudy in the city of Gotham. I think that I think that is the uh, the, the clear answer. And and uh, from a scientific standpoint, I think that what what. Uh, what is fa- factual is if Gotham happens to be in a very humid area, no matter whether it's cloudy or not, you could see that a searchlight was being shined into the sky. If you lived in Phoenix, Arizona, you might not be able to see it reflecting off of any of the particles in the, in the air. But if it was in Orlando, Florida, you definitely could. Um, is Gotham Chicago? Uh, well, Gotham is a fictional city. It's, sometimes it's Chicago. Sometimes it's New York. Occasionally it's Pittsburgh. Um, at least judging from the movies. So here's my question, Hank. When I was, when we were kids, there were a lot of searchlights in Orlando. Remember, like a yes. new club would open or whatever, and you could yeah. always see the searchlights. Uh-huh. I, I remember being able to see the beams of light, you know, moving around because they were moving searchlights. I don't remember being able to see, like, the thing, the equivalent of the bat signal. Like, I could see the beam of light. I couldn't see the equivalent of the bat signal. I'm wondering... Yes, from, from absolutely not. You cannot project... Like, there is... 
not a way to project an image onto a cloud for a number of reasons. Now, clouds can be fairly flat on the bottom. That certainly isn't always the case. But they are far enough away that it, is, it would be very difficult to focus light in that way. You might be able to do it with lasers, but you could not do it with a normal uh, a searchlight, a searchlight style of thing. You certainly couldn't like just strap a logo on top of a searchlight and uh, and have that be projected into the sky. The good news, though, is during the '80s, Batman got a beeper. <laughs> so you could just what you do is you just call him. He's at five 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 one two one two. Wait, so the whole bat signal thing is it's just a lie? It's just a visual. It's just made yeah, up. Yeah, no, yeah. I mean, it's a comic. It's a it's a great trope for a comic. Absolutely, like I love it. I don't I don't dislike it or anything. But yeah, no, that's <sighs> not gonna work. That's fine. Sorry, that's, that's a bummer. Yeah, I mean, humans are inherently evil, John. I didn't say they were inherently evil. I said they were inherently complicated <laughs> and hungry. <laughs> Oh, man. Anyway, today's podcast is brought to you by Batman. Batman, totally unreachable, apparently. (laughs) He has a beeper. (laughs) Okay, today's episode of Dear Hank and John is brought to you by angry parents yelling at referees. It's a whole group of people who really just haven't worked out reality quite rightly. Today's episode of Dear Hank and John is brought to you by Human Evil. Human evil. Hank doesn't think it exists, and yet it keeps happening. And of course, this episode of Dear Hank and John is brought to you by Thrive Market. Thrive Market is there to help you maintain the kinds of habits that you want to have. For me, I need to have the right kind of food in the house or I will eat whatever. Oreo recently sent me some free fancy Oreos. They were weird. I ate all of them. I ate all of them in a week, and it was a problem. I can't do that. I need to have healthy, good stuff in the house, and Thrive Market can help you have healthy habits. It's a great go-to for all your grocery and house household essentials and the convenience of getting everything online and then like just quickly shipped to the doorstep. It's a huge time saver. Thrive Market carries brands with great ingredients and sourcing methods. They got Amy's, Banza, Burt's Bees, Trobani, Honest Kids, Kind, Mike's Hot Honey, Oatly, Olipop, Poppy, Salt, I've never heard of salt, but it's got two A's in it, so it has to be good. And as a Thrive Market member, you can save money on every single grocery order. On average, you can save over 30% every time. And they also have a deals page that changes every day. When you join Thrive Market, you are also helping a family in need with their one-for-one membership matching program. You join, they give. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order, plus a $60 free gift. I enjoyed my $60 free gift. I was surprised by it, and it was the kind of thing I wouldn't have bought. And then now I'm like on the ghee train. They gave me free ghee. And I was like, I don't know what ghee is. But then I was like, oh, this is great. It's like butter, but it's different and more spreadable. <laughs> Go to thrivemarket.com slash dearhank for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash dearhank, thrivemarket.com slash dearhank. Of course. <laughs> I think it exists. And of course, this podcast is brought to you. I don't know that I do even. <laughs> Looking for a new pulpy podcast? Dear Hank and John is supported by Dirt Cheap, a new podcast from Neon Hum Media that digs deep into the dollar bins of used bookstores and your grandmother's storage unit in search of sass and questionable grammar. Hosts Amanda Meadows and Jeffrey Golden bring these bizarre stories to life each week, chapter by chapter, with a heavy dose of humor and a dash of schadenfreude. Each season will explore a discarded pulp novel culled from the dustbin of 
literary history reenacting its pages through narration and sound design. In season one, they read the book Murder in the Glass Room, an L.A. noir novel that almost became a blockbuster film. Subscribe to follow and solve the murder mystery of season one by searching for Dirt Cheap in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We have another question. This one is from Rory, who asks, Dear Hank and John, I've recently been watching old Vlogbrothers videos, and in 2011, you guys were talking about stocks in the evil company Warner Chilcott, which, uh, by the way, raised my prescription drug prices a lot, and so I told people to not buy their stock, which... I guess that was my my act of activism. Anyway, it's got me thinking, how does one buy stocks? So if either of you had any insights into this and any advice on whether I can or should invest in stocks, that would be greatly appreciated. Best wishes, Rory. P.S. Keep in mind that I'm 17 years old. Yeah, um, you should definitely buy stocks if you're 17 years old and you have a bunch of money sitting around, Rory. Um, yeah, I mean, this is, the, this is the time to do it. Yeah, when you have a 55-year investment horizon. Um... <laughs> <laughs> so, Rory, the answer to your question is that a, a, a share of a stock is essentially a very small percentage of that company. So if I buy 100 shares of Warner Chilcott stock, I, I then own some fraction of the company Warner Chilcott. Um, I can later sell that fraction of the company to someone else. Um, it may be worth more or less, depending on whether you know Warner Chilcott has grown its business in the intervening time while I've owned the stock. Um, and then there's another way that you can potentially uh, make money from owning stocks, which is dividends. If, if Warner Chilcott makes a profit of, say, um, you know, $100 million, they, they may pay out uh, a portion of that profit um, to their shareholders, to their owners in the form of dividends. Um, that's as for how you buy a stock. Um, you most mostly these days people set up accounts um, with brokerage firms. Uh, you you know from Fidelity. You may have seen commercials for companies like E Trade or a TD Ameritrade. Um, on, on TV, uh, those those companies are basically places where you can go to buy tiny amounts of companies and <laughs> yep. also sell them. Yeah, and the reason why stocks are are tend to be a good deal is because uh, because the economy has grown in the past, and we believe that it will continue to grow. Uh, and 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 uh, indeed, if it doesn't, then there are larger problems that we would need to face. Uh, and the, uh, yeah, so the, the stock market tends to grow over the last, you know, hundred years at around 6% per year, which is a very good return on your investment. And if you put, you know, a hundred dollars in now, that hundred dollars would be a lot, a lot of money by the time you retire. And that is kind of the way to make sure that you have, uh, you know, can take care of yourself, uh, into old age. Yeah, actually, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to find out what uh, Rory. So let's assume that uh, a 6% interest rate um, uh, compounding a $100 initial investment, uh, that's going to be $1,800 uh, in 50 years, uh, assuming a 6% return and that you uh, reinvest the money that you make. So based on the averages of how the um, stock market has fared over the last 100 years, in 50 years, you could turn your $100 into uh, the uh, equivalent of $1,800 today. Now, is it going to feel that good in 50 years to have $1,800? Or is it going to feel better now to have a brand new pair of sneakers? That's up for, that's up for you to decide. I'm not, yeah. not here to make your decisions. But do not buy just one stock.
No. That is a very bad idea. No. No. The great thing about uh, the great thing about financial tools now is that they're so cheap uh, that you can buy lots and lots of stocks at the same time, even with a relatively small investment like $100. It's important stuff. I mean, it's kind of exciting. It is incredibly important, and it is horrifying to me that we had to learn it as adults and everyone else has to learn yes. it as adults and that it's not part of like education. Yes. Well, we should do a crash course personal finance, John. We've talked about it. I would love uh, to. And maybe someday we'll be able to. But in the meantime, you can watch The Financial Diet, our new uh, channel that we're, we're producing with uh, lovely people in, in New York City. Uh, it's called The Financial Diet. You can Google it and learn about how to live in the world and make your dreams come true without destroying your life. I, uh, I, I wish that all of your answers were in the form of songs, Hank. Um, let's have a question. That was my jingle for the financial diet. Ryan, uh, who asks, Dear John and Hank, I'm 20 years old. I'm from Texas, but go to university in Scotland, and I'm gay. When I try to think about who I am as a person, I usually make lists of adjectives and facts about myself like the things I just mentioned, but that doesn't really feel like me. At a time in my life when I'm still working to find my niche, I have to evaluate myself in terms of those around me to figure out whether or not I fit in with them. But at the same time, I'm also trying to find myself. How do I balance the need to understand myself in terms of the surface level performances I put on for others and the need to understand myself out of an external context? Or is there even a difference between the two? Uh, The subject line of that email, by the way, Hank, uh, am I the sum of my recent emojis? which is a beautiful, <laughs> beautiful subject line. Um, yeah. And and that's a big question, one that I've been trying to write about for the last four years. So I, I, hopefully Hank will have a good answer. Well, I believe strongly for myself that uh, there is no such thing as myself that is separate from my experiences and my values. And like, there's not a, like, there's not a core me that just connects to like what I, you know, like, like to all of the things that, that like we, we describe as identities uh, or like, I, I am just those things. Like in the way that a calculator, there isn't a calculator. If you take all of the calculators parts away. You know, a calculator is like a circuit board and some buttons in this, the solar panel. I'm holding a calculator in my hand right now and some plastic. And and like that is the calculator. So like and then if you take away all of its parts, it isn't anymore. There's nothing there. It's, it's not like a bunch of stuff that's tied to a calculator. Yeah, I don't want to make your life harder. But what if you take away one part of the calculator? Like what if you took away uh, the button for the number nine? Is it still a calculator? Yeah, it's still a calculator. And at some point you take away enough things. Yeah, I get it. But it, it like that that's not that's not the metaphor I'm trying to make. That's not connected to the metaphor I'm making. The metaphor I'm making is simply that that like. I am just a bunch of things, a bunch of expectations, my the story that I tell myself about me. Like there's no there's no core thing that I try that I ma- have managed to uncover. It is just a bunch of things that have happened and that I tie together with narrative structure in my mind. Uh and I can change that uh and I can and and like the, certainly there are like there are, I have predispositions toward emotions and and maybe those are slightly different than other people's. But uh, the idea that like I I just can't get behind the idea that there is a thing that I've that I've been trying my whole life to uncover that then I can be my true self when in fact my true self is just an amalgamation of my my predispositions and my values and my experiences. Yeah, I mostly agree with that. I, I think the only thing that I yeah, and and I think that. You know, Ryan's question and your response to me are, are both sort of indicative of this 
shift that we've had in the last hundred years of human history away from uh, away from the soul or the idea of the soul as being sort of core, well, I mean, let's say Western history core to personhood. Well, I I, I wouldn't necessarily say. Well, Western I mean, Buddhism history. is very much about this idea of like the self not being a a structured thing, and that it, that is a, is a constructed thing that people create for themselves. Right, but within Buddhism, in almost all sects of Buddhism, there is a uh, there, there is something inside of you that survives into the next life uh, in in the karmic circle. So, like, there is still some essence that is capital Y U, um, and that idea has has been, I think, deeply challenged in the last hundred hundred fifty years by industrialization, by you know, by globalization, by um, and 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 to some extent by by scientific discovery, but I think yeah. um, I I am very interested in in like at what point I stop being me. Like um, you know, mm. if I had a uh, for for instance, I have a, I have a friend who had a traumatic brain injury before I knew them, right? And if you speak to people who who knew my friend before the traumatic brain injury, they always say like, oh, well, he was a different guy then. Um, Mm -hmm. but he wasn't, but he also was like, uh, right. And, and so this is, that's like a very difficult, like it's a difficult thing to get around, get your head around when it comes to identity and understanding yourself and also like understanding other people. Um, you know, right. But I'm also a different guy than I, than I was when I was 16. Like there are other ways to become different than, than right. Yeah. Yeah. No, physical change occur. Yeah, that's why that's what I think is so interesting about the calculator metaphor that you don't find interesting about it, which is okay. But like, I am interested in like, if I take things away and add things, like at what point is the calculator is the calculator just no longer a calculator and it becomes something else entirely like it becomes a computer or it becomes, you know, uh, a a robot or something. I, I don't have an easy answer for that question. And I don't think there is an easy answer. And I I think Hank is absolutely right that like you are you know, the sum of your identities and experiences and feelings and that you aren't, you know, you aren't uh, separate from those things. And that that's part of the reason that understanding your identities and being able to process your experiences in a way that helps you to create yourself. Like, I think that's part of the reason that's such an important process. And like, anytime somebody is sort of dismissive of that process, particularly among young people, I get really angry because I think it's, you know, I think it's important and I think it's valuable. And I also think it's something that not just teenagers and not just young people are doing. And there's, there's a, there's also a sense that like, there are some people who just like have find, find it very easy to know who they are. Yeah. Uh, and, and that often comes with some, some like, you know, just being like people expected them to be being, you know, sort of like if you grew up in Texas, for example, you would probably not be a gay person moving to Scotland. Um, Depends on the the average Texan. There's two Texas. Depends on the Texas. Very true. Very true. Um, But like, if you just sort of fit into society as it exists, then you, 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 it's sort of a less difficult path. And, and I like, I kind of fit into my, the expectations of me early on in my life a lot. Like it was just like, Oh, you're a nerd and like do nerd stuff. And I was like, okay. Um, like, like whether that was like do well on tests and enjoy Star Trek or get punched by people at school. Like I just did all those things. And like, there was an identity for me to fit into really easily. And so I did that. Um, and that, uh, like, like it's 
when you realize that your identity is something that you construct for yourself, it can be liberating and terrifying. And like, I think that that's what it should be. And I, I, I think that like stripping yourself a little bit of like the constructed identity that's been applied to you or that you've applied to yourself uh, is necessary to do sometimes. So I guess all we're saying is that this is a healthy process and that there is n- not an end to it and there doesn't need to be, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, that doesn't help me with my book much, but hopefully it's helpful to Ryan. It's a great, it's a great question. I mean, like I think... Yeah, I think that Ryan needs a whole series of podcasts on what the self is. You can go and watch some good TED Talks on what what's what the self is. Uh, you can just type in like identity into TED, into the TED website. The problem with all of these, uh, all of these self, um, cons- all these ways of new ways of looking at the self, whether they're constructed or derived. The problem to me is that all of them seem to um, imagine a self. That I don't, I don't know that it exists in a body that's ninety percent not me. Ninety <laughs> percent of the cells in my body are bacteria. Like, am I, am I me, or am I actually just like essentially a colony? But, of but by weight, by weight, you're the vast majority of you is you. The bacterial cells are very small. By weight, you're almost <laughs> all you. <laughs> well, that's, I find that very unhelpful. Uh, I can't, I cannot over, I, I cannot overstate how. Well, a hundred percent of your brain cells are, are you. So there's that. Yes. I don't know. I, uh, I hope anyway. I, I, I'm very, I'm very distressed in general. I have to say about like what, uh, how, how we understand what constitutes personhood and how we, um, and how we sort of uh, give or acknowledge personhood in others. And I don't think that we do a good job of that right now. And I think one of the reasons we don't do a particularly good job of it is because we don't think about it very much. We don't think about what actually uh, makes people people or what actually, you know, how to actually treat a person as a person rather than treating them as, you know, uh, so many people are treating Adam the high school referee. Right. Or just like, you know, like your your sort of like offhand construction of a person. Because, of course, you can't, like you can't, you just don't have enough cognitive resources to try and imagine everybody the way you imagine yourself. No, not nearly enough, but you should have enough cognitive resources to uh, be able to confer personhood onto others. But I, I, I think increasingly that personhood is something that is... Um, uh, that is both like won and conferred. It's something that's both like achieved um, by, you know, like, because I don't think, I don't think uh, people who are benefiting from power structures particularly like to confer personhood upon uh, people who are oppressed and not being treated mm-hmm. by the world mm-hmm. as, as full yeah. people. But I also think that it is it is conferred in the sense that, like, we all have to agree that each other is human. Like, we all have to agree that um, one another is is a real person. Right. And so and so people who are afraid to to or, or dislike the idea of bestowing that personhood on people create constructions by which they can they can dehumanize them in their own minds uh, and, and, and have themselves believe that those people deserve their their situation or that uh, or that there's some threat that they represent to their way of life that is not about like just, you know, the the fair distribution of resources but it's about like the destruction of something greater than than any individual human etc um which is uh something that we sure do see a lot uh and and that i've been thinking a lot about lately i don't know 
I don't. You've, now, now I'm back in the darkness in this comedy podcast. Well, it's bound to happen. Uh, we are all going to die. Not just, not just we're all going to die, Hank. It's much worse than that. Uh, everyone we love is going <laughs> to die, and everything that we work for will disappear into dust. Everything forever. And you sometimes eat poop. Not just a little bit either. Lots. <laughs> it is just a little bit. It's just a lot of different poop. You just eat a lot of. You eat a little bit of poop oh. a lot. Speaking of which, it's time to get to the news from Mars and AFC Wimbledon because we've we've gone too far down the rabbit hole of darkness, and um, we're too we've we've it's it's almost recursion at this point, just sort of uh, spinning around this idea of selfhood. Uh, thank you for the excellent question. I'm sorry that we answered it so poorly and ended up uh, ended up in this re- recursive nightmare. But um, we're going to move on to the news from Mars and AFC Wimbledon. Let's begin with the news from Mars. Hank, I saw the Martian. Oh, good. How was that? I thought it was great. Can you, can you, I have some questions. Oh, okay. Ask me some questions about the Martian. Could you really grow potatoes on Mars using only your poop and Martian soil? No. Oh, that's a <laughs> bummer. Uh, I mean, they're working on on ways to to do it. I mean, basically, what you'd need is you'd need to rinse the soil real good because there's some stuff in the soil that would uh, that would eat uh, potatoes, uh, not like not like consume them, but just harsh chemicals that would oxidize the roots, which would uh, make it impossible to grow. So you'd need to wash all that stuff out of the soil. You'd need more water than Mark Watney had, but but maybe maybe real life Mark Watney, if that ever happened, would have access to more water because. It'd have some kind of water uh, production system in place that was more significant than the one he he had. Uh, but yeah, I, it is absolutely possible to grow potatoes on Mars, but not only with human poop and Martian soil and water. Uh, another question for you: uh, to what to what extent is that what Mars looks like? That's what that's what Mars looks like. I mean, that was one of my favorite parts of the movie. Some people complained that there was like a lot of just like like shots of Mars, and they're like, "Come on, get with the story." And I'm like, "Shh, I just I, if the whole movie was just renders of the surface of Mars with with like little dust devils yeah. rushing across it, I would I would be perfectly happy." Yeah, that was also my favorite part of the movie was just the Mars parts, just the parts where you were just looking at Mars and he was a tiny little person. Um, yeah, I thought it was a very enjoyable movie, though I have to say. Yeah, you know, I, I think it, I liked the book, but I think it was it was sort of made to be a movie. I think it was a better better movie than a book. Sometimes, sometimes that happens. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and sometimes people get angry at me when I say that it doesn't happen that often, or when I imply that books are a more enjoyable experience than a movie uh, because I'm being an elitist dillhole. But I like books a lot and also i feel like they're the underdog in this fight so don't you feel like maybe movies are doing okay and don't need to be protected so harshly this is a little bit of a personal thing that i have experienced in my life that really has no bearing on reality yeah or this podcast yeah seriously speaking of which um is there any other news from mars other than the fact that i saw the martian or is that the big news that that's that's big news. The the uh, there is also a recent report that was put together, um, and this has bearing on a question that was asked to us by Samuel, who asks, "Dear Hank and John, why aren't there moon bases? We hear a lot about wanting to go to Mars, but it seems that to me that if we're serious about living on other planets, we would go to the the moon first to test the technology." It's real close, so why aren't there any moon bases? Well, a recent report from MIT, I think. 
I'm not entirely sure if it was. Yes, it was. A recent report from MIT says that uh, if we want to go to Mars, it indeed might be a really good idea to set up some moon bases and particularly set up a moon base that would produce fuel that we could use to get to Mars. Now, there's this huge problem that we have in getting to Mars, and that huge problem is called Earth. It's very heavy. It is hard to get stuff off of it because it is so heavy. It has a lot of gravity. Uh, and so in order to get to Mars, you have to not only launch all of the stuff you want to get to Mars, but you have to launch all of the fuel that it takes to get to Mars and also all of the fuel necessary to push the fuel to Mars and the fuel necessary to push the fuel to push the fuel. It's a big problem. It's why it's hard to get to space. But if we launched some little robots to the moon that just created fuel using electricity from the sun or from nuclear generators and, uh, and water and uh, some other stuff on the surface of the moon, then we would be able to get to Mars much more easily by having a sort of pit stop at the moon because you can launch fuel off of the moon much less expensively because the moon is much lighter than the Earth. So your proposal is to build a nuclear power plant on, on the moon. Well, I mean, a lot of, a lot of space stuff is powered by, by nuclear generators of one kind or another. So that's not a that's not a crazy idea. No, it's just nice to know. It's nice to know how the human experiment will end. Well, I mean, it's the moon. What's the wor- what's the worry? But yeah, I know. And when we blow it up, when we blow it up, we're going to find out just how big of a deal it well, was. Well, first of all, you can't blow up the moon with even a very large nuclear weapon. That's not going to happen. Uh, and two, this might this might be solar powered. It might be solar powered, John. Or three, it might be more of a thermoelectric generator, which is just like basically a lump of radioactive stuff that is just hot, uh, that is used for electricity. Not a not a nuclear reactor. Sometimes I feel like you haven't even seen so, the movie Armageddon. Like it's just not even part of your scientific understanding <laughs> of the world. I did recently read a book in which the moon explodes, uh, and it turns out to be a very bad thing for Earth. Oh, yeah. I think I uh, reviewed that book in the New York Times Book Review, actually. Really? You read Seven Eves? Nope. Different book. Amazing. Oh, wow. Different books explode with moons exploding. Wow. It happens all the time in literature, apparently. (laughs) Well, I mean, that's all fine and good, but let's get to the real news, Hank. AFC Wimbledon. All right. uh, A a team owned by its fans. uh, Just... The most wonderful institution that humans have ever made. What is good of us is all contained inside of AFC Wimbledon. Um, <laughs> so uh, we played we played more camp on uh, Saturday, the seventeenth of October, and we lost. And we didn't just lose; we lost five to two. Uh, so that was that was not good. And then uh, this Tuesday, as I'm talking to you, uh, which is yesterday. Uh, we went to Accrington Stanley, and we played them away, and we've never uh, beaten or tied Accrington Stanley in the last four years of playing them, uh, and the, we gave up three goals, and we won four to three. It was amazing. Uh, we were 2-0 down in the first half, uh, but we've got this new striker, Lyle Taylor. He's 15. I mean, he's 25 years old. <laughs> he's 15. He's uh, just a child. He's 15. We do have a couple of, we do have a couple of legit 15-year-olds, but he's not okay. one of them. Lyle Taylor, is a, he's a very promising striker, though. He's had a kind of a journeyman's career, like a lot of uh, League Two players. He, um, he played uh, in Scotland for a, a club called Patrick Thistle. Um, and he is actually uh, Montserratian. You know uh, where Montserrat is, Hank? I couldn't tell you. Well, it is a uh, it is it is in the Caribbean Sea. It is a Caribbean island, oh. um, and he plays for the Montserratian national team. In fact, he scored a goal for them. Um, 
it's pretty, you know, yeah, he's a, he is an international goal scorer. Okay. Uh, but he um, he scored two goals in this game uh, for, for AFC Wimbledon. We came from 2-0 back uh, and 1-4-3 and put ourselves in a situation now where, you know, uh, you don't like to get ahead of yourself, uh, certainly, but there's, there's some promising things going on over at uh, AFC Wimbledon, right dead center in the middle of the table. Ten points uh, from last place, ten points from first place uh, on 19 uh, points. But, you know, I feel uh, scared but good. Well, so all they have to do is score ten points in the next game, right? Because that's how, that's how it works. Well, no, uh, you, only get, you get three points for a win, one point for a tie, and zero points for a loss. So we would have to win three games and tie one while the best team in the league doesn't play any. Okay, I see. All right, that makes it hard. That would that would be ideal. Yeah. Um, but it was an absolute. Uh, yeah, it was an absolute thriller of a game, and and there were only 125 uh, AFC Wimbledon fans who were able to make the uh, you know the Tuesday evening trip uh, to Accrington <laughs> Stanley, but. Uh, they enjoyed a heck of a game and I'm starting to feel I'm starting to feel like this team is coalescing a little bit so we'll see we'll see how things go but I it, it seems good right now all right well congratulations on your mediocre season thus far John thank you so much so what did we learn today John well we learned that uh, when we start talking about self or when we start talking about getting rocket fuel to go to Mars uh, we quickly get into a recursive spiral and we learned that it is important to have a diversified stock portfolio if you are capable to invest uh, through index funds uh, at, a, at, a, at a brokerage firm such as Fidelity or E-Trade or TD Ameritrade. <laughs> None of whom sponsor our podcast, just to nope. be clear. Also, we are not certified financial planners. Please, nope. God, do not listen to us. And of course, we learned that Seamus Heaney likes skylights and Hank likes small enclosed spaces. We also learned that John had the best robot costume of all time for three years when he was a child and I never got to wear it. And maybe by the third year, you were just wearing it so I couldn't. Well, it all worked out in the end, Hank, because you were able to use your anger over me having the better costume as a child to become the better costumer as an adult. So I hope there's some comfort in that for you. Yeah, I, I think I've just, I've spent an awful lot of time trying to make up for, for that. And maybe I don't even like wearing cool costumes. I'm just trying to make up for my scarred childhood of not having a good enough costume for a couple of, I'm sure I had great costumes. I'm sorry, I feel bad about saying that to, and I'm sure my mom, if she's listening, would be sad to hear that I feel as if my costumes were inferior. They were not. I love you, Mom. Uh, this podcast... Oh, she's listening. She's a great She's a great friend of the pod. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dear Hank and John. I am Hank, and that guy is John. We uh, are always open to more questions. You can send them to dearhankandjohn at gmail.com. This podcast certainly nope. would be... Dear hankandjohn at gmail.com. No dear, just hankandjohn at gmail.com. I'm sorry, everyone. <laughs> and and w- what would we be without your questions? Just a bunch of news from Mars and AFC Wimbledon. And who wants that? <laughs> uh, if you and, and a short poem as well. You can also send questions via Twitter, hashtag Dear Hank and John. This podcast is edited by Nicholas Jenkins. Our theme music is by Gunnarola. And as they say in our hometown, don't, don't forget, forget to, to be awesome. awesome.